The Saskatchewan Healthcare Coalition is hosting the All for Public Healthcare Rally in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, May 4th. It's free and you're invited. This rally is happening because our public healthcare system does not have the support it needs to meet the diverse needs of all Saskatchewan residents. For years, it has been underfunded, ignored, and hindered. So join Donna and I in person on May 4th in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan for a walk, speeches, networking, and community building. Link for more information is in the show notes. Hope to see you there. The way a lot of our leadership is framing decriminalization, saying it's not a silver bullet. Nobody ever claimed it was a silver bullet. It's one piece of, of many pieces that need to come together to stop the drug toxicity crisis. I'm always asked why I support decriminalization, and really I want to ask what great impacts from criminalizing people have you seen in your community? Folks aren't safer, communities got more violent, gangs are thriving. Frankly, criminalization has brought us here and will continue to produce these results if we don't make a change. All right, what's going on, everybody? That was tonight's guest, Dr. Barbara Forensler. I'm Daniel Unmanageable, and this is Hard Knocks Talks coming at you from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Treaty Number no. 6 territory, and the traditional homeland of the Metis people. Let's bring in Barb. Barb, how are you? Hey, you doing well. Thanks so much for having me on tonight. Excellent. Thank you for being here. Also joining us tonight is the executive director of Prairie Harm Reduction. Kayla DeMong. Hello, Kayla. Hello. Good evening. How are you doing tonight? I am good. How are you guys? I'm doing well. I'm going to turn you down because suddenly you got very loud. <laughs> Sounds good. It seems like everybody goes it. up. Everybody goes up a couple of notches. When the lights go on, everybody is like, all right, it's go yeah. time. And all the sound checking we did goes to shit. <laughs> it's all my adrenaline. Yeah, I can see you're just teaming with it. <laughs> so, um, is there anything that either of you would like to say before we jump in tonight? It's hard to follow that intro by Barb. <laughs> well, I tried to get you today, but you're meeting after meeting after meeting. So, yeah, yeah, Barb, Barb, she did a good job. We'll just like Barb, Barb wins the intro. And uh... mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a it's a competition, you know, and we're all yeah. we're all gunning for first place. So yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I guess with that, we'll jump in. This is Hard Knocks Talks. All right, before we jump in tonight, I would just like to let our viewers and listeners know that tonight's live production is sponsored by Prairie Harm Reduction in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. To learn more about them, you can check out www.prairiehr.ca. Let's just jump right in. Barb, tell us a little bit about um, what has recently happened in British Columbia. Yeah, so it's a really interesting uh, pilot project happening out of British Columbia. They've implemented um, decriminalization of personal possession of substances for a three-year pilot period. And that started at the end of January and will continue until January 2026. Um, what that basically means is that adults over the age of 18 can carry up to 2.5 grams of cocaine, MDMA, uh, methamphetamine, or opioids. Um, in combination up to 3.5 grams of all of those substances combined um, without criminal charge, assuming that they are not at a school or a childcare facility or an airport. Hmm. So they're, I, they're sorry. I got I just got to say that I'm really glad that you clarified that it's not cumul like it's not 2.5 of each. It's individually because <laughs> some people oh, might yes. think. <laughs> okay, it's so that's each, cumulative right? then. And okay. Yes, yes. So, uh, so yeah, if you had 2.5 of each of those substances, you'd be over the threshold and still charged criminally. So, so Kayla, what did you think when this, uh, when this law came to pass? So, um, you know, it's been an interesting journey since this law came to pass. Um, prior to this, you know, I was part of lots of national calls with various groups, including the Canadian um, Drug Policy Coalition, Kaput, the Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs, various drug user groups in BC um, who had been advising to this work or being consulted around this work. And so we were very eager to see where this would go. Um, I can tell you that with that announcement that originally came last summer, there was some pretty significant concerns with how it was being put forward and a lot of disappointed people on that call. 
because so much of what the drug users had advised the policymakers and so much of the work that had been done by various groups to give input into these policies were not considered. And there was just a lot of concern that the consultations had not been heard, that people that use drugs still weren't being listened to. And so it's been very interesting um, from my perspective, sitting here in Saskatchewan, where we're 20 years behind any innovation. I think, you know, it's one very, very tiny step towards some better things. Um, But I think there is some, there is some concerns with some of those things, including the thresholds that were um, put in place for this policy. Do you think the thresholds are inadequate? Yes. And, you know, I've heard lots of threshold conversations. um, Mm -hmm. And it's one of those conversations, like, I don't know who's right. But I do know that there are people, I think of our festival crowd and people that use recreational substances who go out for a week-long festival, they definitely have more than 2.5 grams of substances Mm -hmm. on them at one time. And that doesn't mean that they should be any more criminalized than somebody who doesn't. Yeah. And so I think there's still, um, maybe you, you should know, get like a, some of that a festival pass based. or something. You get a you permit. Know, right? like I'm, how I'm festival going. I can have five grams. <laughs> Cause like well, when yeah. I, and it's... when I first heard, when I first heard two and a half grams, I'm like, that is a lot of fentanyl. Like that's a lot, you know? Yeah. So, but it's not a lot of mushrooms. Well, and that's the other thing. Like, how can you lump them all together? Like, like two and a half grams of mushrooms. I mean, that's a decent night for, for most, but two and a half gram fentanyl, that'll put you in the ground. So to to just have it, just have it like two and a half grams of anything. Like, I don't know, man. And I think that's the thing. Like, I don't know what the magic threshold number is, um, but I do know across the board, drug user groups in the country were saying that 2.5 just isn't reasonable. Yeah. So what were some of the things that, like, you, you mentioned that the a lot of the input that the people who you were using drugs in, in these conversations were shot down? Like, what were some of the things that were shot down? I don't think they were necessarily shot down, but I don't think that they were integrated in the way that we hoped or that those groups hoped. I know a lot of the conversations that I've been a part of, one of the concerns around the decriminalization policies is that at a governance level, there is this push that anybody that is found with possession should just be referred into treatment and detox right away. Mm-hmm. And forgetting the fact that not everybody that uses drugs needs to go to treatment. Not everybody that uses drugs um, has a problem with substances, right? And so, you know, overburdening an already burdened system where we're already seeing tremendous wait lists and lack of resources, we can't just send everybody there. Right. And so I I think the pieces that are still missing when we talk about decrim um, at a governance level are still that idea of, yeah, recreational drug use exists. Not everybody that uses drugs needs help. And so just because you're found with 2.5 grams of cocaine on a Saturday night, that does not mean you need to go to treatment and take up a treatment space or a detox bed for somebody that really needs it that night. And so you you still see a lot of that stigmatization and those really outdated ideals just around how to approach people that use substances, right? Hmm. So, uh, Barb, you were talking earlier, we were talking earlier today about the Portugal model and how when the idea of decrim was coming to British Columbia, they were uh, aspiring to, to follow that model. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that model for anyone who might not know what's been happening in Portugal since 2020. Uh, And um, tell us, it it seems to me like, like BC fell short of that. So yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so Portugal took the approach of decriminalizing all drugs in 2001. And, um, and so it's been quite some time that we've been able to observe sort of what the impacts of that have been and how it's impacted various segments of the population, that kind of thing. So uh, at the end of the day, there is still sort of a commission uh, that folks have to appear in front of uh, in and sort of talk about whether or not they're dependent on a substance and this kind of thing. So there's administrative penalties in that sense for uh, certain thresholds, but basically 
What do you mean administrative administrative penalties? Oh, like like um, they might have to pay a fine or be sanctioned in some way or or be remanded, not remanded, but told that a treatment program would benefit them and uh, and that they should strongly consider it sort of thing. Quite often, though, it's met with a fine of some kind, which is fine if you're middle class or, or upper class in a sense, but doesn't work as well when folks are in financial need. Um, additionally, the way they approached it was saying you can have a 10 day personal supply. And there's not sort of a hard number put on that threshold the way we have done it here. Um, interestingly, when BC applied for the exemption to the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which is how they're allowed to uh, to run this pilot project around decrim as they were exempted from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, uh, they had actually asked for 4.5 grams as the threshold. And the federal government uh, basically said, no, that's too high. We're going to 2.5 after consulting with, with police services. So it sort of curtailed some of the collaborative process that had been happening in British Columbia to that point to put forward this application. And uh, and I really liked uh, Don McPherson with the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition speaking about sort of thresholds. And rather than having this huge debate around a number, could we move to a behavior-based policing model? Um, so basically saying, you know, if I have, if I, even if I have 2.5 grams of fentanyl um, and I have it divided into little 0.5 baggies and I'm standing somewhere saying, hey, you want to buy some of this? I'm demonstrating an intent to traffic or to sell that, that substance versus if I'm carrying it in my pocket, walking down the street to go to the subway. In my head, I could beat that. I could, I could beat that law. You know, I think well, I'd have a scale in my pocket. And... <laughs> are they, are they going to just like equip the police with scales or whatever? And like, I don't know, with this whole like assigning a number, it seems to me like they're trying to take the same approach as like a 08. You know, nobody can be mm-hmm. over the limit of 0.08. And then they equip the police with like, you know, breathalyzers and roadside ro- demands and all these sorts of tools. Has there been any totally. word about like that? <laughs> I did see... Uh visual document that went out to um, police forces um, that shows you a variety of substances and roughly what 2.5 grams looks like. And it was broken down into like how many slaps roughly are, you know, in 2.5 grams and all of that sort of thing. And so my impression of that is like so many other things, it's kind of up to the police officer's interpretation of what they're finding. Because um, I definitely don't think they're going to have little scales in all the police cars and in their pockets to weigh these things. But really, like, it reminded me of those posters you see about, like, how much is 100 calories? And you see, like, this many grapes or this many chocolate chips. Like, you know, when I was pregnant and they're trying to encourage, you know, healthy eating, they would say, like, uh, one serving of meat is roughly the size of the palm of your hand in this sort of concept, right? That seems to be where they're going with it for the police. So when we talk about um, people being criminalized, uh, I heard Troy Cooper talk about it, about a de facto law where uh, oftentimes police don't arrest for small amounts of of, of drugs anyways. And then uh, Matt Ingruley was on uh, last week uh, saying the same thing and that he encourages his fellow officers mm-hmm. uh, to do the same. Now, do you think that decriminalization in and of itself would really uh, foster a different outcome as far as the harms we're seeing uh, related to the overdose crisis right now? I have two thoughts first around the policing and why, because I was asked by a reporter last week, like if the Saskatoon police are already kind of doing this, then why isn't that okay? And my answer to that was that still leaves room for personality-based decisions. And especially when we look at policing, um, you know, that is definitely a factor in how people get approached, how they get charged, what the impact of that interaction is. And so, you know, without having policies in place, it means that the person who is most affected, which is the person that is being arrested or approached or interrogated, has no nothing to fall back on to say, hey, they didn't do this or hey, they didn't do that. And so you lose that protection over the individual themselves um, and allow the police. And, you know, I know lots of great police officers in Saskatoon, you know, who I know are doing this every day. And we see that with the community mobilization unit in Pleasant Hill. Like those police officers are, you know, definitely working on a different way of policing here. And, you know, so I have no doubt in my mind, you know, has, but do I feel that way about every police officer I've ever encountered in my life? Definitely not. And, you know, it leaves room for like, hey, I like you more than you or you've annoyed me more today 
than <laughs> this guy or like he, I had to break my lunch break for this, like all of those, yeah. right? And so I think anywhere where we can move away from personality-based um, decision-making in our justice system is definitely a right step. Yeah. Um, when we talk about impact to the overdose crisis, I don't think decriminalization itself has a huge direct impact in overdoses. What I think it is, is it opens the conversation for a different way of approaching substance use in our community. And often in the conversations when we're talking about decriminalization, we are also talking about safe supply. And we're seeing some really great information coming from safe supply pilot projects that are run very much on, under a medical model. And there is currently a project being run in BC through a compassion club um, for safe supply that is, again, showing really great results. And although decriminalization policies, I don't think them themselves will stop our overdose crisis, what it does is it changes the conversation around substance use and it starts to create a normalization in our society around how we approach it. And we know that that can be successful because we have seen it with alcohol. Alcohol used to be illegal. It is now not. And we, when we have general conversations around alcohol use in our society, it's a, generally a very accepted recreational activity. We saw the same with marijuana. And again, when marijuana, when they were looking at the legalization of marijuana and what that looked like, there was all sorts of outcries um, and all sorts of, how could they do this? And this, the whole world is going to fall apart and children are going to die, like all of these things. And that didn't happen. Um, and now it's become a very normalized part and people talk about their marijuana use very openly. It's taken a lot of the stigma away from it. And I think that's where these policies really shift things in a different direction and a much needed direction in our society. Got a question coming in here from, uh, from our dear friend, Sharon. Sharon, Sharon, always nice to see your comments. Sharon asks, as a society, are we just giving in to the world of drugs and alcohol? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think really it's um, it's not so much about giving in, but it's about changing our set of tools at the end of the day, right? So right now, the only tool we have to address substance use is criminalization. So when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And what we can do is shift the frame of this conversation from a, a from judicial policy into health policy. And in moving that framework, we are able to, as, as Kayla mentioned, you know, have those open conversations, reduce the stigma and really kind of get into the meat of like, what is it? You know, what is substance use outside of a criminalized context and what are the harms that we need to be aware of and how can we best reduce those harms uh, or minimize them? And one of the ways to minimize those harms is, is not criminalizing it in a sense. So some folks call decriminalization expanded harm reduction, where we're shifting broader policies in order to facilitate better access to health services, more connection between providers and, and people who are seeking services. And at the end of the day, um, just returning to the sort of de facto versus de jure decriminalization, these are fancy words, but basically de facto is, you know, informal, which is what uh, our police chiefs are talking about in Saskatchewan now. And that, unfortunately, versus de jure, which is formal regulatory change that takes takes these offenses away from the justice system and, and puts it in the field of health. One of the things they found around de facto decriminalization is that it actually really increases the uh, role strain that police officers experience, right? So when they're out there uh, working daily and so on and so forth, having no sort of strong guideline around what actions they should take when encountering uh, someone who has possess substance is possessing substances um, that increases their role strain they have to sort of think it through further they're not sure of the options uh, there might be some guidance to like try and refer someone to certain organizations but there's not those formal procedures worked out and that increases the the mental burden on our police officers I, as well so I think I think Donna and I can can relate <laughs> to that I think hardly a day goes by that we don't fight over who has to make a decision about a certain thing <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. imagine yeah. if you had a rule book right Imagine if there was a policy for making yeah. decisions about live streaming and all but, the... right. I mean, on well, that point, and I'm just going to read. Yeah, really. Hey. <laughs> I'm just going to refer back to Matt's episode there where he talked about the, the nice thing about not having that specific uh, policy or whatever is that he that had the discretion to decide whether or not to 
uh, utilize a, a simple possession charge to potentially put someone in cells overnight who might be harmed to themselves or to the community, which I found mm -hmm. really interesting because up until that point, I was on another wavelength, but that was yeah. like, that's a really excellent point. And, and it, that, you know, to that point, like, I remember so many times when I was out on the street, you know, cops would come up and ask me all sorts of questions. And my perspective was like, why the fuck are you bugging me? Like, leave me alone. When he said that, I was like, light bulb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And wouldn't actually... it be great if, yeah, if that mechanism wasn't sort of based in, in criminalizing people, but instead in supporting them, right? So could we provide similar access to supports without criminalizing someone? And at the end of the day... I think we can. Um, and mm -hmm. I think it's often more effective that people don't feel placed somewhere <laughs> in a sense. Um, they're not being hit with that hammer, but instead are offered the support and care that our society says it would like to give to all its citizens in a sense. And um, and I, I will also, and, and Matt and I have many good conversations, so uh, certainly no disrespect in his, in his direction at all. But what we do see in research is uh, when officers are given discretion, um, we then see increased harms to black communities, indigenous communities and people of color. So there's a, an inequity that happens there because of subconscious bias, I'm not saying all our officers are bad people or anything like that. But the way we assess bias is often related to our personal experiences and these kinds of things. So overall, what we end up seeing in the data is the over policing of certain communities versus others. And um, and unfortunately, that kind of discrepancy is part of the inequity that we're trying to address by not criminalizing people uh, as well. So that's uh, that's just a point that I'm sure Matt and I will continue to debate going forward. So. <laughs> So I found yeah, the I found nice. the infographic. I found I found the infographic. Oh. I did. There it is. Yeah. There it is. So was there anything like? Did you want to make a comment on on this, Kayla? Like, is there anything you wanted us to no. bring awareness to? I don't think so. I think it. Well, just from a drug perspective, it's interesting to see. But I think you know. I think like I like that the quarter was used as a marker, and um, you know, I think this is how they're going to be determining a lot of what those possession amounts are. Um, and it's interesting to see how it varies depending on the substances and how much room there is for interpretation even in that, right? And mm -hmm. what does that mean for people? Going back to Sharon's comment just about getting into the world of drugs and alcohol, um, I think one important factor when we talk about decriminalization, this is not a pro-trafficking stance, right? Like we're not talking about the acceptance of the you know trafficking of illicit substances through criminal bodies throughout our country that is a very different situation and i like i am pro policing traffickers right like i do believe that there needs to be um policing and justice interventions when it comes to trafficking because the trafficking of illicit substances causes a whole bunch of harm across our society when it comes to violence in communities the inconsistent supply of substances and the risk of overdose that's increasing when you see what things are cut with. And so I think we're not talking about being for traffickers to have free reign of moving drugs across our city. We're talking about impact to an individual drug user um, and recognizing that reintroducing that human side of things in that interaction and talking about the direct policing of an individual not of the drug system in our country. Barb, you got anything to add to that? Hmm. Overall, I guess, uh, yeah, as I, as I said in the intro, I, I sort of almost want to reverse the question. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the perceived benefits of criminalization, unfortunately, aren't borne out in research. Um, we, we've seen an increase in violence and less safety in our communities as a result of the war on drugs. Uh, we've seen increased harms from the use of substances because of that war on drugs, fear to approach care providers, fear to talk to your doctor about your use, like all that sort of stuff comes with criminalization. Um, and it was supposed to, you know, stop people from doing drugs. Like I, I get the idea in a sense, and it sounds, uh, it sounds, you know, counterintuitive, I guess, to sort of say, hey, actually we need to reframe this as a health issue, but uh, at the end of the day, substance use is impacting health and well-being uh, for many individuals in the community. And, mm -hmm. and frankly, how do I put it? That we've tried the war on drugs for over 50 years. It's brought us here. I don't think doing more of the same is going to change the situation. 
had another thought about thresholds too, though, and uh, and I am concerned that when we have too low a threshold amount, that folks will try and make the most of those 2.5 grams, which may lead them to using uh, stronger substances than than uh, so car fentanyl, for instance, rather than fentanyl, because you can carry more of it, and so on and so forth. But I think if we had a regulated supply then folks would be better better able to control the dose and the amount that they're taking. Uh, they would be able to trust the product in their hand and not, even in the in the BC legislation, it's sort of the, uh, the person is supposed to say what they think they're holding in this bag because there's an implicit acknowledgement there that everything is tainted with fentanyl and other kinds of analogs uh, that do cause additional harms. So um, I think if we're acknowledging that, even in this decrim effort, we're going to see um, we need to sort of be aware of that. And that's where the safe supply comes in um, so that it is a regulated supply that's monitored and people know what they're taking. At the end of the day, if you know what dose your uh, your meets your needs as, a, as an individual person, uh, you're better able to ensure your own safety in using that product. So mm -hmm. uh, much like we saw with alcohol, right? When it, when it went from being prohibited and people were mixing things up in bathtubs and so on and so forth, uh, no idea what the strength of that alcohol is in a regulated industry. We have a better sense of, you know, what a shot versus a beer versus wine does sort of thing. And so folks mm -hmm. can better uh, manage their own use patterns, basically. And and as you say, there there are still harms from substances, absolutely, but we're able to talk about those harms as a health-based issue without the additional burden of criminalization and dealing with the legal system. If we move to regulated supply, as we do have done with alcohol, that increases taxation, which we have more money to go into extending services. Well, and I was going to say part of the conversation that we don't often hear, and policymakers definitely don't like to have this conversation, is when you look at the history of drug regulation in our country, and it's a very interesting history, history. I really like knowing where things come from. And when you look at where drug regulation started, which, you know, in our country started in the late 1800s, really formally, it was not out of community protection. It was not out of a public health emergency the initial start of our drug criminalization, which is very fitting, started in BC, specifically Vancouver in our country. It was purely out of racial control. It was European Canadians who were policing Indigenous populations. And at that time, it was specifically around um, policing Chinese immigrants who were brought here to do work around the railroad. And it was a way of controlling that population and removing them from the country. Hmm. And so, you know, there's a really deep racialized history when we look at where these drug policies come from. And we've accepted them as that there's some sort of public health need or that there's some sort of societal need. But like so many other policies in our community, they really are rooted in colonization and the what was seen the betterment of power, the way that um, Euro Canadians could increase their power over populations. Got a question coming in here from uh, from Des. Des, good to see you, man. Good to see you back. Uh, Des asks, at this point, is it a war on drugs or on untreated suffering and poor coping skills? It's a war against a population of people that have been seen as unsightly or we don't you know, that don't deserve help or they're just making bad choices. Um, I say this a lot when I do education, that we just have drawn this very hard line in our society around substance use and that people that use drugs are bad and all of them are bad. Anybody that uses substances is bad. If you don't use substances, you're good. And we have to make the bad people good. And the way to do that is by regulation and control. Um, rather than looking at the fact that when we, it's very well known that the underlying factors around substance use disorder and why people turn to substances for coping has to do with trauma and mental health. And it's a very complex societal thing and their issues that our society has created. And um, rather than solving the underlying issues would have to do with poverty and racism and classism and sexism, homelessness and all of those things, it's just easier to see if we can police our way out of it and control the situation more and control that population. And so it really is a direct target on a 
population that is facing a multitude of barriers already. And rather than lifting them up, we turn, we choose to keep them down. So let's talk a little bit about the perception of harms. Um, I had Nathaniel Day on a little while ago. I had a great conversation with him. They are bringing in a program this month, I believe. Uh, I quote me or correct me if I'm wrong. Um, about they they are going to start doing some safe supply, safer supply in uh, safe consumption sites in certain places in Alberta, but they're very very tightly regulating those supplies so that they they do not leave this site uh he expressed concern around the perception of harm that somehow a safer supply is somehow not as dangerous it's not it's not you know going to cause as much harm and that will reduce people's barriers in using these substances and quite possibly increasing the substance use challenges that we're already seeing in our community what do you have to say about that you know i think we've seen some really great safe supply programs across the country. BC has been already, you know, they're already a decade into some of their programs. Mm -hmm. I've had the pleasure of meeting people who were in some of those initial pilots um, and not only around focus on opioid use, but there was also some really great programs around amphetamine use and mental meth use in the community and getting to talk to people who had participated in those initial programs and since have met many people that run those programs and have participated in them. And, you know, when we talk about harms, one of the harms and one of the best, like the greatest impacts of safe supply is that we know that the substances that people are getting are the, or that they think they get, that they're getting are the substances that they're going to get. And so if they think they're getting cocaine, they are getting cocaine. If they think they're getting heroin, they're getting heroin. And they're not, you know, it is lessening the risk of overdose and the impacts of drugs like fentanyl being cut into all sorts of substances in our society um, and in our communities. The other big factor is it humanizes using, right? Like we're no longer telling people that if you want to use substances, if you need to use substances, that you have to do so through a variety of means, which, you know, include sex work and committing crimes to purchase drugs and all of those things, that there is an avenue through a medical model to do so through a prescriber with the support of, you know, a lot of these programs have nurse practitioners and nurses and counselors and all sorts of peer workers and all sorts of resources for people to access. And so it, again, draws people into supports rather than pushing them away. Um, there is you know, we are seeing uh, some pretty significant conversations around non-medicalized safe supply. And like I referenced the Compassion Club that's running in BC, and they're having really great engagement and showing really great results. And again, they're purchasing substances through the black market currently, testing them all and then redistributing them. And so again, so people know what they are getting and they are seeing a tremendous impact in the number of overdoses that they're seeing in that population that's accessing those services, right? And so it is reducing quite a few harms by approaching substance use this way. One of the limitations I think that we might see in the proposed model for Alberta is that not everyone wants to go to a supervised consumption site every time they are using their substance of choice sort of thing. So, so that will still be a barrier, uh, certainly in Alberta, um, because of that stigma, because of sort of the ongoing criminalization folks are not real eager to show up with their health card with their name and address and say, hey, this is me and and provide that information. Mm -hmm. So that is yes. that is at the end of the day, exactly, exactly the point. Uh, <laughs> we've we've sort of had this moral framework that Kayla was describing, right? And we made it, you know, immoral to use substances. Uh, realistically, mm -hmm. lots and lots and lots of people across all kinds of demographies and society use substances, uh, some on the regular, some not on the regular, so on and so forth. Like there's all kinds of patterns uh, and frequencies of use. And we're trying to create a policy that works for everybody across a broad population, right? So uh, what we know for sure is that criminalizing folks for that substance use does not help. And a lot of the things that people find, uh, you know, sometimes you'll hear folks talk about, wow, it was really nice to, you know, have three meals a day and a place to sleep and these kinds of things. And that's how prison in a sense helped them out and i'm sort of like well and yeah but then that criminal record's a barrier and so on and so forth like it impacts the rest of your your life and we could provide those same stabilizing factors you know a place to sleep that's safe 
three meals a day, um, access to different supports and resources, we can do that through housing programs rather than the criminal justice system, which costs like quadruple what just housing someone would cost sort of thing. So if you're, um, yeah, if you're a fiscal conservative, harm reduction approaches are absolutely better uh, than than these other sort of reactive responses, I guess, right? So we can get proactive, share with people what the information is, those kinds of things, help folks make more informed, safer decisions uh, when they're when they're faced with questions around use and then support them uh, to, to achieve that. So um, we don't have to only use this hammer of criminalization. And, uh, and I think part of the concern is that folks are looking around and they're like, oh, what do we do? You know, if we don't criminalize people, what are we gonna do as a society? And that's, I think, really what this conversation is about and what the pilot test in BC is about is sort of what are what are we doing here if we're not criminalizing people? And that's going to be a lengthy conversation because there's a whole lot of aspects going on. But if folks can can reach that point of stabilization where they're not in chaos every single day, then they're able to engage things like, yeah, do I want to address my mental health concerns? Do I want to continue my education? Do I want to work in this industry or that one? And you can start having a fuller life when you're not on the daily grind seeking your substance seeking a place to stay <laughs> seeking out resources um it it can be very time consuming to find a substance of use uh, and to find the money for that substance of use so in a different context uh we can alleviate a lot of that burden and treat it like the health issue that it is so when we're trying to move towards decriminalization in saskatchewan uh, i would say that a natural progression when we move past decriminalization, because I mean, the drug supply is still toxic and we're now uh, we're reducing uh, some barriers to that toxic supply by making it more accessible, making it legal, so to speak, decriminalized. Um, what would a safer supply look like in, in your opinion? And I want everyone to chime in on this, but Kayla, we'll start with you. Do you think that it should be like just an unfettered access? Like I should be able to go to the liquor store and buy a 40 a Jack and a gram of fentanyl and like, what do you think that that should look like? You know, and that's an interesting question. Um, you know, the harm reductionist in me wants to say, yeah, like, why not? You know, mm -hmm. we, we, and we've seen it um, in other places and we've seen it with other substances. At this point, I think anything is better than what we have. Um, and I think like so many things, we tend to swing the pendulum from one extreme to the other, right? And we need to fall somewhere in the middle. Um, and recognizing those risks. But I do think that there should be access the same way we've seen with marijuana. Like I absolutely do. And I think it should be accessible um, within regulations and within, you know, age limits and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Barb? Yeah, I mean, even with alcohol, like if you walked into the to the liquor store and were like, I'm going to buy 800 bottles of, of 99 proof rum and da da da. Basically, we set rules and sort of say, hey, now it's likely that you're going to be sharing or selling this alcohol, hosting an event. So you need a different kind of permit to do that, um, that kind of thing. So, you know, if you wanted to buy up all the fentanyl that was there, there might be some regulation around that. And, <laughs> and buy up fentanyl. <laughs> right. Like, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't know where you're going tonight, Dan, but it's. Uh, yeah. but you know, and making sure though that, um, and you know, maybe part of that supply, if it was offered, um, and, and I will point to the fact that fentanyl has been a very effective painkiller in medical context for quite some time, but we know the dose, we know the, we know all these things about the substances being used in that medical context. And so it, there's not that risk of poisoning in the same way, um, or at least you can monitor it better. So anyway, at the end of the day, yeah, if you went in and, and purchased your, your substance of use, you'd at least know what's in it, how much you're getting, so on and so forth, and you would be able to modulate or adjust your use accordingly. So it's. I mean, that's that's and, the idea, anyways. Like there was no modulating and adjusting my use when I was using. Yes, I was using until yes. it was all gone. There was no regulation at all. So I for would, me, 100%. I would try to hide some. Yeah, some kind of, and like I would tear the house apart yeah. to find it. Like it was, yeah. it was a mess. Like I, I'm yeah. not sure that and this modality would be is, good for me. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think price point is, uh, is an important consideration. Uh, Dr. Tim Stockwell has done a lot of work around that with alcohol and sort of, 
yeah, Bucca beer programs can be very problematic for the general population and increase harms. Um, and at the same time, we know that denying all access will increase harms. So there is that middle ground somewhere there with price and control and other regulatory frameworks mm -hmm. that, uh, that minimizes that harm at a population level. And then hopefully individuals who are experiencing harm are like, yeah, go hard, you know, and, and doing those things that hopefully they can uh, think about the relationship with that substance and access support at an earlier point in time um, than rather than a later point in time or in the emergency department. Um, we could also include naloxone kits with the sale of that, right? So uh, so if you were picking up, you know, your fentanyl, there'd be a naloxone kit that could be paired with it and you could go home with that and you could have a whole bunch of messaging around, you know, what to do if you've had too much sort of thing and or don't use alone and and these kinds of things that that help help promote safety, right? So we, uh, many of us learned what the early signs of alcohol poisoning were and when to get someone to a hospital, right? Um, mm -hmm. And we were able to have that conversation because alcohol is regulated and we can then understand how much we're having, how much is too much. And yeah, sometimes folks are gonna go over that line uh, and maybe harm themselves or, or potentially harm others. And we wanna make sure there's frameworks in place for that so that it's regulated and those harms can be reduced as much as possible. It's, I'm a pretty unique harm reductionist in the fact, like I do live an abstinence-based lifestyle and I do that because I know I can't use, like I don't go to the liquor store and just hang around because it's a dangerous place. And it's a dangerous place for me because in my brain, the minute I'm like, oh, I'm going to have one, I'm instantly like, why would you have one? You could have 18 and then like, I'm topless in Mexico in two seconds in my brain, right? Like <laughs> that, like my brain doesn't work right, right? But lots of people's brains work just fine. And I'm married to somebody who is a successful substance. He drinks alcohol. Again, I know that I am unsuccessful at it because when he has a drink and walks away, I get angry because he doesn't walk. <laughs> and I'm You're like, drinking wrong. <laughs> right? And I'm like resentful inside. And I say to him, like, what do you mean you're just going to have one? Or what do you mean that six pack of beer is going to last you two months? Like, what? Like, what is that? And so, you know, I think it's the same with substance use. I have met lots of people in my journey in this field who, you know, recovery for them means that they still use some substances. And rather than looking at what people are using and the amount they're using, I have started to look at what does their life look like? Because if they're still using substances and go to work all day and take care of their kids and pay their taxes, like in all of those things, they're a productive member of society, which is always the goal, you know, that we talk about in 12 step recovery all the time. Right. Um, and that should be fine. And we need to just accept that for all substances. And again, we've done a really good job accepting that for alcohol. We've done a great job accepting it for um, marijuana. And I think we can get there with everything else, but it's about shifting those perspectives. Right. And that not everybody is like me. And not everybody gets angry when someone has one beer. I do the same thing like for people who smoke weed on the weekends. And I'm like, why? Like, why would you just do it on Friday? Like, what is wrong with you? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not there's nothing wrong with my brain. That's what the <laughs> issue is, right? And I think we can get there. Um, I do a lot of education in my job for people, and I do a lot of presentations on harm reduction. And one of the things I talk about often is that when we talk about these things and accepting substance use as part of our society, we have to remember that every time something happens like this, there is, it becomes very divisive in our society. And we saw that through COVID. COVID was a great crash course in harm reduction. Um, when we look at masking and social distancing and all the things we did to keep each other safe, right? And to mitigate those risks. Um, I have a really great video that I use. Um, that's a news video from like the early eighties talking about seatbelt regulation. And you see this guy, this Saskatchewan farmer guy, just screaming at this reporter how he will never wear a seatbelt and how dare the government do this to them. Well, now it's very much accepted, right? And I find that that's pretty consistent. Um, we saw it with, when drug or with alcohol prohibition was going away. We saw it with marijuana. Like people get really divisive, pick sides, make all sorts of assumptions, live out all sorts of discriminatory behavior freak out because it's, you know, different. And then we find that place in the middle where things settle in. Nowadays, that guy would be like an outlier of society raging about seatbelt use and how it was never going to happen. And I, in the video, yelling what like his kids will never wear seatbelts and I will never do this. And you're like, 
this is ridiculous now, right? And so I think decriminalization of other substances is the same thing. It's going to be divisive for a while. And then we're going to find this place in the middle where it just works for our society and it works for our communities. And we find the ways to implement policies around it that mitigates those risks and manages the concerns that we have. Um, my concern at this point is how long it's going to take us to get there. And I am like, it is concerning in Canada that things aren't happening across the country. You know, we don't see a lot of um, nationwide initiatives when we talk about these things. It's really up to individual provincial governments and civic level governments or municipal level governments to make these decisions and these innovations. And, you know, where we are probably going to see the greatest impact is when we start to see nationwide policy changes and regulations and that sort of thing, which is what we saw with other substances, right? And this has to be a bit of a blanket approach rather than a, it's just up to everyone. And depending on your government, depends on whether or not you're going to get to move forward, right? And in Saskatchewan, we know that with our government, we're not getting anywhere forward, right? We're just going to take a quick break here. I just want to let tonight's uh, viewers and listeners know that tonight's episode is also brought to you in part by Naranon Groups in Regina, Saskatoon, and Moose Jaw. Uh, to learn more about all our sponsors, check out our upcoming live streams, pick up some merch and more, visit www.hardknockstalks.com. Uh, we do have a question coming in. Lilani asks, in accepting substance use in our society, so you think we need to reframe what it means to be a productive member of society? Yeah. <laughs> I talk about this a lot when I teach students because, like, we just have these ideals of what life should look like. What and product, productivity should look what, like. What productivity looks like and what successful lives look like. And we forget like we don't talk about the quality of life. So like somebody who works 80 hours a week and makes, you know, a couple hundred thousand a year may not have the best quality of life. Right. And, you know, I think it, like, again, you can't just, you can't set criteria that meets everybody. You can't, you know, we just can't do that. And being a productive member of society looks differently for different people. Um, you know, I, we have an employment program at PHR. And so like 90% of the staff who run our drop-in space and safe consumption site are people who access services. So we employ people who access services to run those services um, for a variety of reasons, but it builds some skills and builds capacity and that sort of thing. And there's lots of people that from the outside would look at them and say like, they are not productive members of society. But we we see them and we see them go from, in many cases, homeless with very little self-esteem, very little belief in themselves, very little connection to other people, maintain daily drug use, but showing up for an eight-hour shift every day and getting housed and accessing health benefits. That's a big benchmark for that team, like going for a massage, going, like doing these things in life that we often take for granted their quality of life has improved immensely and their um, view on themselves. And that all changed without their substance use changing at all. And, um, you know, I think we really have to look how we mark success. And I know, like, for all intents and purposes, I should be in a place of self-actualization on Maslow's hierarchy of needs at all times, right? Like I, but I am very rarely adulting at full capacity. Like, I don't know at what point that hits. I'm a couple I, months away from being 40 and I haven't figured it out yet. I think that ship is still for me. To, right? Like, and there's yeah. all sorts of things I do all of the time because that's just how life goes. But from the outside in, we don't consider those, you know, we consider that to be a downfall or that it's, it's affecting our ability to give back to society. And I don't think that's right. And so I think... I think the big thing is that we need to just stop judging people. Like we just need to stop placing opinions and expectations on other people and look at their quality of life. And are they happy? Are they getting their basic needs met? Are they, and I think the most important thing and something that we don't near talk enough about when we talk about substance use, do they feel like they belong somewhere? Do they feel attachment to other people? Do they feel like they are part of something bigger than themselves? Do they have a community that they're connected to? Those things are far more important 
than me being concerned about how much cocaine they did today. Hundred percent, and that quality that quality of life question, um, frankly, relates to you know what are our relationships in life, and unfortunately, the way we framed substance use is legal, illegal, illegal is bad, legal is good. And that almost inhibits us thinking about what is my relationship to this substance of use, right? So, uh, so for myself, 20 years ago in my raver days, you know, I had a, a harmful relationship with MDMA and methamphetamine. And I was able to think about, because I had a bunch of protective factors in my life, but I was able to think about like, what is the quality of life I would like? And is the use of these substances in this way actually fostering that? No, it wasn't. So I was able to shift my approach and relationship with those substances such that I could have the quality of life that I was seeking. And that that question or that sort of conversation around what is my relationship to a substance of use, um, if we're stuck in this sort of good, bad, legal, illegal binary, we're not going to get to that conversation. And that conversation is really a health focused conversation where we're talking about quality of life, about stabilization, about having the kind of life that we would like to have and and whatever that looks like for you as an individual and how that contributes to our society in multiple ways beyond gross domestic product taxation etc cetera, etc cetera, and um and sort of how each of us contribute differently in different ways to our communities whether through volunteerism whether through friendship um, and advocacy there's there's so many ways to enhance the quality of life that has very little to do with abstract biomedical measures of health and those measures are important they help us inform you know understand things and address disease and so on it's it, it has a place but uh, but it maybe doesn't have uh, have to be the moral compass of our society, so to speak, and uh, and the law doesn't necessarily speak to quality of life, and that's that's a hundred percent. So um, that totally goes back to to what Kayla was saying earlier. You know, like no, you're not hanging out in the liquor store, and I'm like, yeah, it's it's about sort of being able to ask that question of what relationship do I want to have with this substance, and we can better ask that with it outside of a criminalized environment and that's to me the best prevention that we can offer like frankly whether i use drugs or not had very little to do with the law like very little to do with it and, me neither and, and me neither right right yeah. so like at the end of the day legal illegal is it actually changing things yeah in the sense that i'm more secretive i'm hiding it yeah i might be stigmatized but i'm not it didn't stop me from using drugs it never um, never even but, played into the factor like at all for me like it never it came almost, into my mind it almost made it more exciting it was more fun yeah <laughs> yeah more more dopamine from this you know like it's 100 yeah, yeah. right or you got away with something and you're like yeah you know like this is yeah and it just feeds that that sort of cycle of chaos in a sense and and we don't step back and say wait a minute you know like what's the quality of life i want to have and what does my relationship with the substance need to be to have that quality of life that i want and what supports are there if i'm struggling to get to that quality of life myself i should be able to reach out to folks without stigma and say hey I'm trying to make a change and i'm not able to and what the heck's going on and do you have any tips you know and all of a sudden i'm able to make those changes that i wanted so we're coming coming to the end here, but I just want to have a look at this uh, article that we pulled up here. And it was it says on Wednesday, Justice Minister Bronwyn Iyer, I hope I said that right, uh, said the provincial government is not interested in decriminalization at this time. We aren't entertaining dec decriminalization in terms of the partnership between BC and the federal government. We feel the rehabilitation side, which we've invested millions of dollars in, is very important and is our fulsome response to this issue. Kayla, what would you like to say? Well, I can tell you that that statement right there and those beliefs of our provincial government are the reason why we are seeing the ever increasing number of overdoses happening in our community and um, why we are seeing a whole population of people being completely disregarded um, when it comes to programs and policies. In the harm reduction world, treatment is not a bad thing. People going into recovery is not a bad thing. People finding me. it's whatever works for that people or those people or in that individual, right? What are provincial government has failed to show us time and time again is that there is a spectrum of services that need to be in place for people that use substances and that they deserve access to supports and resources while they are using 
they deserve access to opportunistic care when they decide or if they decide that they want to change or address it. They need quick access to treatment and mental health resources and, you know, all of those things that are needed. We need access to treatment programs that are beyond 28 days because we know they're bullshit and they do not work. That has been well proven. We need, you know, six month, nine month, year long programs for people to enter into. Mm-hmm. And we need post recovery services and housing programs and all of those things. Our provincial government continues to focus on treatment because from a perception point of view, if people are in treatment, then the government has done their job. They have fixed the problem. They have fixed the people. Never mind all the people that are dying on the streets. That's their fault because they did not make the right choice, right? And it mm. becomes this, it's up to the individual. They did not I am accommodate a, the system. Right. And I am a very strong believer that policies kill people and the policies that are in place in this province and our province's unwillingness to move forward in innovation in well-researched innovation is killing people. Why do you think they're, why do you think, why do you think they're so dug in? Cause they don't give a shit. Like, and I don't think like, I don't think there's any thing other than that. They just don't care. This is a population of people that they don't care about. And why don't they care about because this population of people is not making the government money. It's not business, right? And that's, and I think that's, you know, it's a very simple way. And I know it sounds very cut and dry, but I think it's very true. In addition to, you know, just causing the further detriment to this population, they are costing taxpayers billions of dollars a year. And by not looking at innovative programs, by not investing in harm reduction, by not supporting people when they are using in this province, we are costing our healthcare system, our social services system, and our justice system billions of dollars a year that is unnecessary to spend. And in Saskatchewan, when we talk about substance use, we also have to talk about hepatitis C transmission, HIV transmission, homelessness. They're all tied together. And one HIV transmission in this province costs, costs our healthcare system over a million dollars. One person. We have the highest rate of HIV transmission in this country. And we have for over a decade. Our taxpayers are spending billions of dollars. Imagine if we had that money to invest in school, in housing, all the things that we could solve. 100%. Well, I... I absolutely think uh, them pulling the conversation off the table is irresponsible and negligent. We're in the midst of a poisoning and toxicity crisis. Advocates from across the country and within the province have been calling for enhanced data access, more conversation. They keep talking about the drug task force. And what we've seen come out of that was a, a contracted report that shared about everybody wanting harm reduction services broadly across the province. And they just buried that. They left it out of the news release. They haven't implemented any additions. And they keep talking about these hot magic 150 extra treatment beds and their million dollar record investments. Well, I'm sorry, but when you've been short funding services for over 20 years, this isn't, you know, this isn't a record investment now doesn't make up for 10 years of neglect. And that's really what we're facing at this point, um, along with that misallocation of resources that are on the table. At the end of the day, I would love for the evidence base to inform the policy direction and decisions in this province. And that's the, the very politically correct way to say, um, stop following some sort of inner moral compass, look at the data, look at what people who are experts in this field are saying, and implement your policy according to that rather than arbitrary ideas that you picked up from watching a movie like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. That is not an evidence-based policy training <laughs> mechanism, right? So um, so we need to, you know, but rightly so, like if all I'd ever seen about substance use was that movie, I'd be concerned. You know, I think many people would be, but I think also recognizing that this conversation has been going on for quite some time. Uh, the experts and advocates have been trying to share this with policymakers for quite some time. Uh, and that these changes aren't about sort of willy nilly actions that, you know, just maybe popped up in a newspaper article yesterday, but these are well-researched approaches from people who have worked in this field of substance use and criminal justice for a long, long time. 
at the end of the day, the police, the police board of Canada, numerous other expert bodies have said criminalization is not helping the situation. They recognize the futility in it and the revolving door of that justice system and the way it alienates and hurts people. They're calling for change. I think our, our leaders and decision makers in this province should start listening to those expert voices. Awesome. Thanks so much, Barb. Kayla, do you have any, uh, <clears throat> Barb brought us in, Kayla, you take us out. I, you know, despite all of these challenges, and I can say just in what we've been able to do with the safe consumption site, that although our provincial government takes this stand, the people of this province have been singing a different song for us for the last few years. And um, we see, we have a very broad spectrum of financial supporters that help us make sure that the safe consumption site stays open and that crosses all genders, races, age ranges, and political backing. We do have quite a few SAS party supporters that send us money every month. And so, you know, despite things at the policy level, the people of Saskatchewan are moving in the right direction. And I think as a society, we are seeing the benefits of this. And that does give me faith that, you know, although it's going to be a slow movement forward, you know, we can still affect change and we can still create innovation without having to involve the provincial government. Okay. Well, I think we'll cap it there. Thank you both for joining us tonight. Uh, great conversation. Thank you for bringing your expertise to the community, uh, bringing some awareness to some things and take care. Sweet. All right, if you're getting something out of what we're doing here, you can find us on all audio pod podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts or live and interactive right here on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitch TV. Thanks for watching. Take care. Hey, this is Hard Knocks Talks. <laughs>